Alright. You know, in our, uh, in our modern world of computers and statistics and research and internet information that just floods us at every turn, there are unending studies of nearly everything. Uh, polling organizations are always asking us for our opinions, companies are asking us to review them, and statistics about nearly everything can be found quite easily uh, with the right internet search. Now some of the information is quite interesting, a lot of it is uh, worthless to us, but some of the information is quite interesting. Did you know that researchers say that 1.6 billion people in our world call themselves Christian? And that nearly one-third of all Americans say that they have been born again. That's quite astounding, if it's actually true. Of course, the people doing the research don't uh, usually define the terms, what is a Christian, what does it mean to be born again, do you truly know the Lord Jesus Christ, not just know facts and details about him, but do you really know him in a, in a personal way? And if those qualifying statements were made, then I suspect that the results would probably be quite different. But you know, a great deal of preaching during my lifetime has led many to believe that if they know some basic facts about Jesus, and they accept them as being true, and they pray a prayer to ask God for forgiveness, then they are kind of fixed for eternity, and nothing else is required of them. Uh, to those folks, the term believe simply means to recognize certain facts about God and agree that they're accurate. A person may say, yes, I believe in God. Yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, He died on the cross. Yes, I have sinned and I need forgiveness. And I mean, nobody's perfect. And man, I pray every day and ask for forgiveness. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven because I think I'm a decent human being. I mean, at least compared to some other people I know, I'm a decent human being. And if you spent much time talking to people about the Lord, you have heard all of those statements. But what millions of people do not realize is that religion is not relationship. Faith and faithfulness are two sides of the same coin. You cannot separate faith from faithfulness. You cannot separate what you believe from your behavior. And agreeing with a fact is not the same as obedience to the truth. The promise of eternal life requires submission to God's authority. If a person is truly coming to Christ, they are not only recognizing their sin and their inability to earn forgiveness, they are also recognizing the authority of Jesus Christ to tell them how to live. You can't just pray a prayer and then go back to living like the world or living any way that you wish to live. The word translated believe in our English Bibles does not mean to, to mentally acknowledge a fact or intellectually acknowledge a fact or just agree that something is true. The word believe in our Bible means that you give a pledge of loyalty or we might call it a pledge of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and His cause. And many of you, perhaps most of you, maybe all of you, you remember the, the, the rather chilling words of the Lord Jesus as he ended his famous Sermon on the Mount, as we call it in Matthew 5 through 7. Near the end of Matthew 7, Jesus himself said this, and I want to read a couple of these verses to you. 
Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, we have, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a very chilling teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. That people stand before him in judgment and they say, Oh, Lord, Lord, oh, you're my Lord. Look, you're my Lord. I've done this. I've done this. I've done this. And Jesus looks at them, he says, and I'm, and, and I'm going to say to them, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You're not in my family. You don't belong to me. Because Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the person who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he goes on with the famous story we all taught our Sunday school kids, the wise man built his house on the rock. And Jesus says, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You know, those people who built their house on the rock or who built their house on the sand, they heard the same message, but they did not respond the same way. Jesus says, you hear my words and you do them, then you're like the person who built his house on a rock. You, you hear my words, but you don't do them. You're like the person who built his house on the sand. And so Jesus is kind of reiterating again, everybody who says, Lord, 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 to me, they're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the person who does the will of God in heaven. Now those folks he talks about here who are saying, Lord, Lord, I've done this and that for you. Do you think those folks prayed the prayer, as many say? I'm sure they did. That's why they're calling Jesus Lord, Lord. But those who truly know him and he knows them, they are doing the will of God the Father. They are hearing the words of Jesus and they are obeying them. So we see again just from this, this one passage that religion is not relationship and you cannot separate faith and faithfulness. You cannot separate what you believe from your behavior. True salvation requires obedience to the truth. Now that is not to say that you are perfectly sanctified every day of your life. We all stumble in many ways, as James 3 tells us. But as the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.9, he said, I make it my aim to be pleasing to Him. That is the goal of our lives, so to be pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we truly know Him as our Savior, yes, we are going to stumble. Yes, we are going to blow it. But the desire of our life is to please God. When we crash, we get back up and we start going again for the Lord Jesus, recognizing His authority in our lives and pleading for His mercy and trusting His goodness and remembering our pledge of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and His cause. That is the evidence of true salvation. And just praying the prayer, as many call it, does not guarantee you a ticket to heaven with no responsibility to submit to the Lord Jesus and bow to His will. Jesus never made it that easy. That's why he said, again in the same passage in Matthew 7, he said, enter by the narrow gate, 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, there are few who find that. You see, the message that Jesus preached was a call to discipleship. It was a call to follow Him in submission and obedience. It wasn't just a plea to make a decision and pray a prayer and then go back to life as normal. And in our text today here in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 9, as we're working our way through Mark, we're going to finish off the Gospel or chapter 9 today. But in our text here in Mark 9, Jesus expresses some graphic and in some ways very severe challenges to what we're going to call, what I've just called, intense discipleship. And I hope to explain this passage to you grouped around these four thoughts, four marks of intensive discipleship. Follow along as I read the text here, Mark chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 42, and we're going to go up to the end of the chapter there at verse 50. Mark 9, verse 42. Jesus still teaching his disciples as he did, just as we've been seeing the last couple of weeks. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. This call, we might say, to intense discipleship that we've just read is not, is not new to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. It, it is consistent with his whole ministry. He has been calling people, inviting people to come, to repent of their sin, to trust in him, to receive forgiveness and eternal life and become his disciples, his true followers. But his calls have, have been very intense. He has told people that they need to repent of their sins. They need to turn from their sin. He has told them to deny themselves. He's told them to be willing to forsake everything if need be in order to follow him. Be willing to forsake your family connections if necessary. Your brothers and your sisters may think you've lost your mind if you follow me, Jesus says. You may remember from our earlier studies in Mark that Jesus' earthly half-brothers did think he was crazy. They thought Jesus was literally insane by what he was claiming and saying. Jesus said, said, some of your family may think the same about you. Your parents might disown you, Jesus said. They might not, but they might. And you'd better be prepared, prepared for that, he said. If you follow me, Jesus said, you're going to have to give up control of your life and your future. Because your marching orders, uh, for my marching orders for you, may push you out of your bubble. It may drag you way out of your comfort zone. 
Jesus said, you might even possibly be called upon to die for me, maybe even be crucified. So this text is not some strange new concept that Jesus just came up with as he draws near the end of his time on earth. He's not just turning up the heat as he ends or comes near the end of his earthly ministry. He is being totally consistent with everything that he has ever preached. He is being very direct. And as we go through this text, as I said a moment ago, I'm going to try to explain these teachings as four marks of intense discipleship. The four marks, I'll give them to you, then we'll, then we'll talk about them. Intense testimony. Intense dedication. Intense devotion. Intense obedience. The four marks of intense discipleship, where Jesus says, I'm not calling you to just lollygag through life and do whatever. He said, I am calling you to follow me. I'm calling you to be different. I'm calling you to take some risks for the cause of Christ. I'm calling you to an intense discipleship. The first one, intense testimony. Jesus said very plainly, whoever, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones to who believe in me to stumble, meaning to fall, to turn away from, uh, from me, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know that testimony matters. And what we mean by testimony is, how are you representing the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you living for Him? Are you striving to be like the Lord Jesus in word and attitude and action? And when people get to know you, does your lifestyle, does your work ethic, does your honesty, does your morality, does your language, do, do all of those things represent the Lord Jesus? Does your behavior and your lifestyle lead people closer to the Lord or does it lead them away from the Lord? And Jesus warns in this very severe statement in verse 42 that if you lead another believer, another disciple to sin, You'd be better off to die a horrible death, have somebody tie a big stone around your neck and throw you into the ocean. Sounds kind of rough. But it's not new for the Lord Jesus Christ to have that kind of protective attitude toward his own children. And Jesus is not just speaking about little children who believe in him, although that's certainly an application but also to every one of his children. He said, everyone who believes on me, well, we might say all of his children, especially to those who are young in the faith, new believers, young believers, those who are not mature and grounded in the faith. And Jesus says, don't you dare do things that cause them to stumble, that lead them to sin. It's a very important scriptural principle. Christ lives in every believer. And so how you are treating other believers is how you are treating Jesus Christ. And how you are treating Jesus Christ is how you are treating God the Father. You can't isolate true followers of Christ from Christ. John 13, 20, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. In other words, Jesus said, if you receive me, you're receiving God the Father. If you receive the people I send, fellow believers, you know, our fellow believers in Christ, he said, it's like receiving me. As we said last Sunday, when, when Jesus was speaking to Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, on the road to Damascus, when, when, he, when he spoke to him there in Acts chapter 9, 
Jesus is in heaven. And he speaks to Saul, who said, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The scripture says that Saul had been breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the Lord's people. And Jesus says from heaven, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, you can't separate true disciples from the Lord Jesus. And you can't separate the Lord Jesus from God the Father. So Jesus says, you better not be doing things that influence followers of Jesus towards sin. You'd better not be setting an example that leads people towards sinful behavior. He said, you'd, better, you'd be better off drowning yourself. That's why we call this intense testimony, a mark of intense discipleship. Do we take our testimony that seriously? We should. And Jesus challenges us to do so. Many, many followers of the Lord Jesus, unfortunately, do not take their testimony for Christ very seriously. It's just kind of this whole, oh, well, they can get over it or whatever, and I'm not hurting them, and they don't like what I do. Oh, well, tough luck. Jesus says, be very, very careful about your testimony because if you are leading other people towards sin, if you are leading other people away from the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, you'd be better off tying a rock around your neck and throwing, your, throwing yourself into Lake Francis. He said, don't take your testimony so casually that it's just a ho-hum sort of thing. It is intense Testimony. That's what Jesus is calling us toward. Secondly, intense dedication. Once again, in, the, in these verses that we read, the, the, the language that Jesus uses is so incredibly strong. When he says, he says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And he goes on with the hand, the foot, and the eye. Interestingly, you know, I am convinced that Jesus is trying to impress on us how severely we are to deal with our sin. This is language that's similar to Romans, where Paul talks about killing sin. He uses the word mortify. It means to kill your sin, to pound on it, to beat it up, be, be aggressive, have an aggressive, severe treatment of our sin. And it's very interesting that the, the, the body parts that Jesus mentions here, the hands, the feet, the eyes. When you think about that, everything you see, everything you do, Everywhere you go, your hands, your feet, your eyes, everything that relates to your life and your behaviors, and all of the verbs in that little section, they're all present tense verbs, which means it's something that you keep on doing. Keep fighting the battle. If your hand is tempting you, if, if your eye is tempting you, do something drastic. If, 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 you're, if, if the things that you do and the things that you watch and the places that, that you go, if it is leading you away from God, he says, do something drastic. Keep fighting that battle. It's not just a once and for all thing. We wish it was. We'd like to be just delivered once and for all. But that's not the way it is. And as long as we are in this sin-cursed physical body, we're going to have a continual struggle with temptation and sin. But Jesus says, deal with it in intense ways. Don't be casual about it. Now, I don't believe Jesus is telling us to literally cut off our hands and gouge out our eyes. Because he has already taught us 
that our sin problem is within us. Our sin is a problem of our hearts. And gouging out your eye and cutting off your foot isn't going to keep you from sinning. But Jesus is saying to us, we had better get serious about our dedication to God. He said, first, we better take our testimony seriously so we don't lead others astray. Then he says that we better get serious about our own sin and we better deal with it severely. And remember, with all these present tense verbs, he's talking about a lifestyle of sin. So I challenge you again, if there are things that you do and places you go and things that you watch that are leading you away from the Lord, Jesus says you better cut them off. Because our choice, he says here, is holiness or hell. He says if we refuse to deal with our sin, it means that we don't truly know the Lord. I want to, I want to say that again to you. If you refuse to deal with your sin... It means that you don't truly know the Lord. Because people who truly know the Lord are constantly struggling with their sin nature. They understand the battle. They know they have the battle. They're constantly fighting the battle. People who can just sin and it doesn't bother them and can live a lifestyle of sin and it never phases them, the Bible indicates that they don't truly know the Lord. Because if we really have the Holy Spirit within us, He's not going to leave us alone. He's going to bring conviction. And things are going to bother us. And we are going to fight the battle. You see, if we have a casual attitude toward our sin and think it's no big deal, then we need to examine ourselves and see if we're truly in Christ. Following Jesus calls for intense dedication. So, some serious battles against our sinful impulses. And we can't really, leave, I don't want to leave these verses, these few verses first, without mentioning that the word, uh, the word for hell that Jesus uses, uses here several times. The, the word for hell that Jesus uses is the word Gehenna, G-E-H-E-N-N-A, for those of you writing. It's just Gehenna. It is always the term that refers to the lake of fire. Not just the place of the departed dead, as in Hades, but the actual burning lake of fire. This is why it's described as a place of unquenchable fire. The root of this word, Gehenna, comes from an Old Testament phrase, the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom in Hebrew, Gehenna in Greek. It, it is a steep ravine, we might call it in Montana, a deep coulee, that goes down to a wider valley south of the city of Jerusalem. That was the place where back in the Old Testament, some of the wicked kings like Ahaz and Manasseh, they, they offered human sacrifices uh, of babies to, to the god Molech. It was denounced, of course, by the prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah 32, Jeremiah 19, and Jeremiah denounces all of those things. In fact, Jeremiah renames that valley. He calls it the Valley of Slaughter. He also calls it the Valley of Topheth. Topheth comes from a Hebrew word that means drum. And some Old Testament historians tell us that, that large drums were beaten during the times of those infant sacrifices in order to drown out the screams of the burning babies. Absolutely horrifying. Josiah, a godly king, according to 2 Kings 23, he put a stop to all that. He destroyed the altars. And he turned the valley of Hinnom into Jerusalem's garbage dump. There was always a fire going down there to help to, help to uh, destroy the, the rancid food and the sewage and to keep down the flies and the maggots. And I don't mean to be overly graphic, all right? I just want you to understand the word. 
the place of child sacrifice converted into the city dump with the constant odor and smoke from the burning garbage. Hinnom in Hebrew became Gehenna in Greek, and that is the word that Jesus uses to describe what hell will be like. Unquenchable fire. Gehenna is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament, 11 times by Jesus. The other one time by James in James chapter 3. In this place, he says, the fire is not quenched and the worm, meaning the maggot, never dies. That's a direct quote from Isaiah 66, 24. It's actually the last verse in Isaiah. It refers to a day of judgment when the Lord comes. So this is certainly one of the strongest calls to intense discipleship that our Lord ever gave. He says you either deal radically with issues of sin in your life through repentance, or you end up in the eternal garbage coolie punished forever where there will be darkness and weeping and wailing and grinding of teeth and agony, where the fire never goes out and the maggots never die, he says, according to what we read many places in the Gospels. Once again, I'm not trying to be overly graphic. I'm just trying to be honest and straightforward with what Jesus is teaching here so that we understand what his original hearers would have understood. You see, until we run from sin toward righteousness to embrace the Lord Jesus, the only one who can forgive us, until we do that, we haven't even begun to be disciples and once we have come to truly be followers of Jesus, that becomes our desire to be dedicated to Him. Wonderful verse, we won't turn to it, but let me just read it to you. 2 Corinthians 7.1, the Apostle Paul wrote, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That is what we're driving toward. So intense testimony for Christ intense dedication to Christ, and then third, intense devotion. Verse 49 is a very interesting verse, somewhat difficult in some ways. Everyone will be seasoned with fire, and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Uh, you say, what, what, what in the world is Jesus talking about there? But when you consider it from the perspective of Jesus' Jewish audience, then I think we can get the meaning. Uh, the only place in Scripture where we see fire and salt together is in sacrifice, the Old Testament sacrificial system. The first five chapters of Leviticus explain the five sacrifices that were always given under the law of Moses. You had the burnt offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, and the grain offering. Now, four of those offerings, the, the, the burnt offering, peace offering, sin offering, and guilt offering, four of those were animal sacrifices for the purpose of, of atonement for sin. But the grain offering, obviously it's offering of grain, it, it's, not, it's not an animal sacrifice, not a blood sacrifice. The grain offering was offered to demonstrate a sacrificial devotion to the Lord. And according to Leviticus chapter 2, the grain was salted before it was burned on the altar. The salt would symbolize the preserving power of God in our relationship to Him. The grain would symbolize us being devoted to God, trusting Him completely. You see, people would be burning a portion of their food supply for the next year. Had to be trusting God. They're burning up part of their food in an offering to God. 
So if we were practicing the Old Testament law in those years, we would be burning a portion of our food supply for the next year. So that would be a picture of our devotion to God with the preserving power of God salt sprinkled over us. Intense devotion. How much are we willing to trust God? And how far are we willing to go in our relationship with Him? Intense testimony, intense dedication, third, intense devotion, and then lastly, intense obedience. Verse 50, Jesus said salt is good. Yeah, it is. I'd hate to eat food without salt, especially vegetables. I know some of you guys don't eat vegetables at all. But I mean, I, I, I take a bite of something, what's the first thing I do? I reach for the salt shaker. Carol and I were in a restaurant the other day, and, and I had ordered some french fries, and uh, actually sweet potato fries. And Carol, of course, as she often does, reaches over to my plate and grabs one. Takes a bite, better put salt on those before they get cold. You know, why? They, they needed salt. So salt. Salt is good. It gives things flavor. It's wonderful. The word good there means useful, profitable, beneficial, and especially, of course, in a world with no refrigeration like the ancient world, no ice. So preservation required salting. Salt is good, Jesus says, unless it becomes unsalty. If the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? So as some would say, when the salt isn't salty, what do you salt the salt with? So you just you know, salt's great when it does what it's supposed to do. Jesus made frequent references to the issue of salt. Now, chemists tell us that sodium chloride or salt is very stable. It can be stored for years without losing its properties, its saltiness. So what's Jesus talking about when he says, well, if the salt loses its flavor? How does salt become unsalty? When a chemist says, I mean, it can sit on the shelf for years. You know, some ancient Roman historians maybe give us some insight to that. They write that there's some salt in the mining process that got accidentally mixed with gypsum, also in the same areas where they, were, uh, where they were doing some of the digging. And that would corrupt the saltiness properties in just a few months, and it would make it kind of worthless. They, they would have a very short shelf life, we might say, if the salt accidentally got mixed with gypsum, which according to some ancient Roman historians was relatively common. And so Jesus says, salt is great. But if it accidentally gets mixed with something else and it loses its saltiness, then it's absolutely worthless. So he says, have salt in yourselves. And what I believe Jesus is saying is, be pure salt. Don't get mixed with anything that will dilute your influence for the kingdom of God. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose that, that influence in your life that brings people toward Christ, that leads people toward Christ, that influences people for the kingdom. Don't, don't mix your salt with anything else. Uh, don't, don't, uh, in fact, how can you influence people for the cause of Christ if you're on again, off again, as it often is said? Don't be mixed with worldliness. Don't be half-hearted in your obedience. Be straight salt you'll have a much longer lasting influence for the Lord Jesus. Jesus does not call us to a haphazard, ho-hum, if I feel like it relationship. Jesus calls us to a radical, intense discipleship. 
If anyone would deny me, he says, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. It is an intense discipleship marked by testimony and dedication and devotion and obedience. May God give us the strength and the courage and the fortitude to be real disciples. Let's pray. Lord, you know, these are very challenging, very challenging words of the Lord Jesus. Very strong language. Very straightforward. And here in our North American lifestyle, we have such a casual life in many ways spiritually. But Lord, you called us to a radical, intense discipleship. Laying it all on the altar doing what you want us to do, being willing to forsake whatever we have to forsake in order to pursue our relationship with you. And in these words we read today, Lord, you have some very, very serious challenges for us. We pray that you'll give us the the spiritual fortitude and courage and strength and ability to live up to the call of God on our lives. Lord, we pray for anyone here who may not be absolutely certain that they know you. Maybe they've prayed the prayer, as people often say. Maybe they know some facts and details about you. But they've never really taken that pledge of allegiance, that pledge of loyalty to the Lord Jesus. They've never actually submitted to your authority and bowed the knee to to your lordship. Lord, I can't see into anyone's heart, but you can. I pray, Lord, that perhaps if there's anyone here that way today, that they, that they may give truly their heart to the Lord Jesus Christ this day. And Lord, for we who do know you, we are convinced of our salvation. We know we're, we know we're in Christ. Yet we know, Lord, that our discipleship gets a little weak once in a while. Sometimes it's a little shaky. And we just pray, Lord, that we will uh, listen to this call to intense discipleship and that we will take, take seriously our testimony and our devotion to you and our obedience to Christ. Thank you, Lord, for these folks who are here. I pray that the Spirit of God will minister to us as only he can do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.